This is the Church Planting Podcast, brought to you by the Broadcast Network. Broadcast exists to support, train and encourage church planters. For more information about who we are or about the training that we offer, please visit our website at www.thebroadcastnetwork.org. Hello there and welcome to episode 7 of the Broadcast Church Planting Podcast. Today we're bringing you a hangout from back in 2014 with Tom Shaw. Now Tom leads the City Church in Canterbury and for years he also headed up the Mobilise Conference for students and young people. And in this hangout, Tom will be talking about how we can engage the mobilised generation in church planting. You can find this full hangout, including the Q&A with Tom and all the notes at www.thebroadcastnetwork.org slash episode 7. So without any further delay, here's Tom. Bonjour, bonjour. Uh, bonsoir, everybody. Great to see you. And um, I hope at least most of you have got... Um, they're kind of a little PDF. Can you guys just wave uh, in some way to show? Brilliant. Look at that all across the nation. Uh, everyone's waving these little uh, invited booklets. Um, so we're going to look at that uh, in a little while. Um, but I guess um, as, uh, as, as Tim's kind of briefly explained, just, just to be really clear, my name's Tom and I'm, I'm based in Canterbury, lead a multi-site church here in Canterbury in Whitstable. Um, I'm 36, uh, married to a beautiful woman called Josie, three gorgeous little girls, Daisy, Lily and Poppy, who are currently tucked up in bed now in theory asleep. And um, I'm in my little shed, just to quickly give you a quick whirl. I hope that's all right, Tim. Uh, there we go. Uh, my, my gorgeous little shed, which I'm in for most of the week. Um, and uh, I, um, I've had the privilege for the last few years uh, for, of, um, of being involved with New Frontiers, um, uh, particularly in terms of uh, Mobilize and uh, the Mobilize Student and Twenties Conference, which kind of, as it says, um, you know, in terms of the title, is all about mobilising uh, particularly 20s, but not exclusively 20s, to have an urgency in their hearts for mission. And, um, and so I just want to spend five minutes talking about the heart, why it's key uh, that um, everyone who has a pulse and loves Jesus deeply cares about um, having an urgent mission to uh, the teenage and the 20s generation of the UK, and then secondarily, I'm going to spend most of my evening looking at really the how. And that's where this booklet that you've got will hopefully in some way um, provide a little bit of a kind of backdrop. I'm doing a hugely ambitious thing tonight, Tim and all. Um, I'm attempting in now 27 minutes to compress uh, no less than two entire sermon series into uh, the next 27 minutes. So we shall see how it goes, but I will do my best. So I'm just going to pray and then we'll dive in. Father, I thank you that we are one in Christ. Thank you, Father, for the fact that you anoint us to preach good news uh, to those who don't know it. Lord, we want to just ask tonight afresh amidst busy lives that you will align our hearts with the great mission that you've given us. I pray, Lord God, that you will break off any drivenness or kind of intensity that's not healthy. I want to pray that you will fill our hearts with a oh, fire from God. And I pray that you will equip our minds with missionary mindsets, Lord Jesus, um, 
that are actually equipped to be hugely effective, sharp axes, um, no matter where you've placed us. In Jesus' powerful name, amen. Okay, so first of all, just five minutes of a quick burn as to why I want your hearts on this, and then we'll dive into the how. Um, at one level, I guess, if you're tuning in on this uh, Thursday evening rather than watching, I don't know, you know, Top Gear or whatever, you clearly care. Um, and uh, I know some of you in church plant situations. Um, and so at one level, it would be, you know, kind of um, perhaps uh, I don't want to overdo it in terms of trying to enthuse your hearts. But I, I, I really genuinely believe um, that there is a silent emergency going on right now up and down the nation. And I think sometimes we hear encouraging stats about church attendance, particularly in the capital, and that's fantastic. But um, a particular report, which I read about two years ago um, by the Matthias Trust, which is um, a very reliable group of researchers who did an extensive research up and down the nation of literally hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of different types of churches and uh, of every different sort of denominational flavor. And two of the results were particularly haunting. Number one was the fact that in the last 20 years, there has been a 90% decline in 15 to 20 year olds going to church. 90% decline in just 20 years. The second main statistic that they came up with after this extensive research was that that, therefore now 59% of all churches in the UK do not have a single person aged 15 to 20 in their church. Um, Now, that is... That is absolutely terrifying. Um, two years ago, uh, the Brighton Conference had finished in New Frontiers, the big leadershipy thing, and I was kind of faced the the question of do I stop doing Mobilize? And when I heard those statistics, I genuinely sensed the fear of God <clears throat> that those statistics speak for themselves. That we are absolutely a million miles off. Um, seeing anything like what we would hope to see in terms of churches connecting um, with this generation. You might be in a church where you've got quite a few, you know, students in twenties and and teenagers, and that's brilliant. But nationally, those statistics are haunting and they need to absolutely keep us awake at night. I believe they are things that should, no matter whether you call your evangelist or whatever. I mean, I'm a pastor, I'm a shepherd by my main gift, and I'm not naturally good at mission, um, but I fear God. And when I hear those statistics, 59% of churches, uh, nowhere near um, having even one person aged 15 to 20, that, they, that really causes me to think to myself, the, the big challenge Mark Driscoll brought to New Frontiers four years ago was you've always had the value of mission, but you, in many of your churches, don't actually have the, the, the practice the outworking of it. And, um, and I believe God's wanting to absolutely grab our hearts that in the next 30 years, the next 40 years, um, that we wouldn't be throwing out any of the best things that Terry and many of the apostles uh, who are spiritual sons have established in terms of great word and spirit churches, but that we would add into the mix um, not just one or two people who, who are really into mission, but actually tens of thousands. It would be a cultural thing. I also believe that if we are called to be apostolic, which is a word we often hear used a lot, 
I mean, I, I don't at all pretend to completely understand what that word means. But one thing I do understand is that it means being fathered. To be an apostle, I think, means that you father people. Now, I'm a dad with three little girls. One of the most obvious and instinctive things that a father does <clears throat> is he cares about the next generation. He profoundly cares. He puts their needs above his own needs. So, for example, in our car, uh, we, normally have, uh, we normally are listening more to wheels on the bus or whatever, some sort of nursery rhyme, more than my, my, my preference in terms of you know, jazz music, which is what I love. <clears throat> we put the needs of the next generation above our own. And so when I think about us as a movement, really, um, I, I think to myself, for us to be truly apostolic <clears throat> must mean that all of us catch something of the father heart to see the next generation fathered into the faith. Um, I, I've been provoked, um, and um, I'm particularly connected uh, sort of relationally with a guy called Mike Betts, some of you will know, one of the kind of brilliant apostles that Terry's fathered into reality. Uh, and I said to him, one of the things that's most haunted me as a, a church leader of all, almost 10 years now is that no one has ever looked me in the eye and said, Tom, as a church leader, talk to me about how often you're leading people to Christ. Talk to me about how, when the last time was. That's never been something that I've been challenged on. Um, but I've often been challenged on other things which are, you know, important in churchy life. But for me, there is a fundamental seismic shift that's happening across all of us, across, um, I think, certainly Western New Frontiers, in terms of profoundly needing to catch the urgency, the apostolic fatherly concern for the next generation. Statistically, most churches in the UK are absolutely bereft of anyone of that 15 to 20, 25 generation. So therefore, if you are in the privileged position of even having one person in that age group in your church, <clears throat> I'm sure you'll agree with me that there is an urgency that we need to equip anyone in that age group or anyone who cares about that age group to the max to become the very best missionaries that we can possibly um, see come into reality. So I want to now look just for the next sort of um, 15 minutes or so at the how. I hope your hearts are in some way vaguely um, sensing a passion to have our lives count in terms of the UK particularly and seeing that statistic change. And the how really um, is where your little booklet comes in. <clears throat> this was handed out to our church um, really to summarise, first of all, a series that we did called Missionaries which is on the back, you'll see that little man, and you'll see kind of five main points. And we did a whole series last autumn, a year ago, called Missionaries, <clears throat> based on this amazing book. And if you don't have it, run out and buy it right now. Leave this hangout and go and buy it. It's amazing. Called No Perfect People Allowed by John Burke. And um, in this handout, we've, we summarized what we'd done the year before. And then inside, we then looked at this term at eight significant steps that every Christian who wants to become a missionary to their neighborhoods can take. So if you want to understand these two, two things that I'm talking about, the back thing, the summary of last year, the thing that's based on this book, <clears throat> is really talking about getting the church family atmosphere right. It's all about getting, first of all, the church family atmosphere right 
So before we get to the second thing, which is these eight steps, which is then going out and getting your church family to invite people, the first thing in terms of the how um, is making sure the church family um, is has an atmosphere that is in any way New Testament and biblical in terms of helping those who come into faith um, have the best chance possible of not having unnecessary stumbling blocks um, on their way in. So I'm going to talk for just five or ten minutes about that first bit, the this little section here about getting the church family atmosphere right, <clears throat> and then I'll talk for the last five, ten minutes about some significant steps we can take in terms of inviting people in. Hopefully that's pretty simple to understand. <clears throat> so based on that book, first of all, then getting the church atmosphere right. In terms of... Um, I think these five areas, <coughs> John Burke in his book, he makes the profound point that is to be missionaries, um, we can sometimes think of being missionaries geographically, which is true, but we also have to be missionaries in terms of the time in which we are living culturally right now. So we need to understand, do a little bit of work in terms of understanding, Lord, you've positioned me in Canterbury and you guys in Oldham or wherever you are. Lord, what do I need to understand now about the culture I'm living in so that when, God willing, hundreds of people come to faith and come into our church family, how can we make sure the church family atmosphere <clears throat> is as welcoming and, and biblically healthy soil as possible <coughs> so that the only summoning book is, is, is the gospel? And what he identifies are five very consistent struggles that we need to mentally get our people's heads round that are uh, ladies and gentlemen we appear to have some turbulence and we have lost young Thomas Shaw I will there he is tell me back I don't know what happened there sorry about that it's okay. It's Canterbury. You live in the sticks, mate. Let's let's try again. Right. So shall I keep going, my friend? You keep going. Okay. So first of all, then, first section of the how, getting the church atmosphere family right, having an understanding of these five common struggles, the struggle with trust, the struggle with tolerance, the struggle with truth, the struggle with brokenness, and the struggle with aloneness. And now John Burke, who's a pastor in a church in Austin in Texas that's seen amazing, genuine evangelistic fruit, not just church movement. <clears throat> He's observed these five big struggles, particularly in the postmodern generation, i.e. we need to understand that in the 1960s, at an unprecedented scale, there was a throwing off of all moral restraint. In that generation, they decided more than ever before to basically make pleasure their king. As a result of that, more than ever, over the coming few decades, there has been a, <clears throat> a tidal wave of kind of moral effect, really, on the next generation, their kids' generation, that we are now living in not the good of, but the bad of. Divorce rates have gone crazy in the last 30 or 40 years. We all know that. <clears throat> um, he, he uses the phrase that as a result of what's happened in the 1960s and 70s, the next generation, which is the 20s generation, um, it's almost we are suffering up uh, the vomiting up of the negative consequences of their behavior. 
Divorce rates have gone up. Family breakdown um, in America and obviously in the UK as well in the last 20 years has been dramatically affected because of um, that postmodern generation more than ever uh, casting off all moral kind of restraints. Divorce rates have gone through the roof. And one of the biggest issues he really zooms in on, first of all, is this issue of trust. He says, if we can understand uh, the 20s generation, you have to start with the issue of trust. That for so many people in their 20s, just generally, because of the either being directly affected by divorce and seeing things breaking apart, or even indirectly through their mates or people close to them, more than ever, many in their 20s will struggle with, with trusting anyone, particularly the church. So when they think of the church, obviously the 20s is a profoundly media suckle generation. They're being pumped constantly with a thousand different examples of how you can't trust the church, how priests are just pedophiles, how you can't trust anyone in authority, and that includes the church. And so in that context, therefore, the initial thing we have to understand um, in terms of getting the culture right is if... The world out there and the 20s generation, in large part because of the age in which they live, struggle with trust. How do we as churches build cultures where we can start to enable them to trust Christians again? And he uses this phrase that in order to combat issues of trust, we need to create a culture where there can be both doubts about God and also honesty about our struggles. He makes the profound point that actually for people who are struggling with trusting others, hearing anyone and certainly Christians being honest about their struggles, both in life generally, but also their doubts about God, it is actually a profoundly trust building thing. And I think he's right. I I think in our church, we've often thought we've got to have all the answers um, in order to win people for Christ. And what I think John Burke points out is actually the Bible is full of people who doubted. John the Baptist doubted, and therefore he sent messengers to Jesus to to check him out. David, obviously in the Old Testament, was always talking about doubts. Nicodemus was doubting, which is why he, he spoke to Jesus about those doubts. Doubts, Christians who doubt and admit their doubts, I think, are some of the most profoundly powerful evangelists that there are. I think Christians who have never had any doubts, and they've always just been completely full of faith, often lack any sympathy or tenderness when it comes to mission. They just don't understand these crazy non-Christians who don't believe it all. And they, to be honest with you, wind me up. And what he makes the point is creating a culture where you can be honest about your doubts in church is just profoundly powerful to a world that thinks, okay, so let me get this right. You guys genuinely believe that the world was right and there were two people who were naked walking around and then a snake who was actually the devil, uh, got them to eat an apple. And because of that, then the whole world went wrong. And then God sent a baby who was actually God. You know, understandably, the gospel is kind of bonkers in terms of pure logic. And I think us being honest about the fact that there is a genuine mystery in the Bible and having honesty about those doubts is incredibly important. So if one of the key issues is trust, Having a culture where you can, first of all, be honest about your doubts is incredibly powerful, and it begins to show authenticity, which is hugely key if people feel uh, when they come into church, they can sense that. The other thing he talks about in terms of counteracting trust issues is um, having an environment where you can be honest about your struggles. 
So doubt about God, but secondarily, honest about our struggles. And again, this isn't only just pastorally, you know, absolute dynamite, but missionally, it is incredibly key to the 20th generation, I believe, that they hear Christians, um, yes, talk about the fact that in God, uh, we, we know we have hope, we are more than conquerors, we can be overcomers, absolutely. But also about the fact that, um, that we struggle and that doesn't mean that our faith is any less real. It just means that life is full of pain and you're not failing when that's happening. It just means that it's real. My wife, um, who's 10 times the evangelist I'll ever be, um, it was interesting when she, uh, about a year and a half ago, after the birth of our third child, <clears throat> she had very severe um, postnatal depression. And she, um, she was just honest with her mates about it, her non-Christian friends. <clears throat> You could see with all of them when she was honest about her struggles, this kind of penny dropping moment where although they've always loved her, they'd always kind of seen her as this neat Christian lady. And suddenly, actually, her faith almost bizarrely became even more attractive. And it it was no coincidence that after she was honest about that time in her life, that very dark time about a couple of years ago, immediately five of them instantly came on Alpha. And I think for us as church, when I even when I used that illustration and mentioned it to the church, so many women in the church had said they could they felt they couldn't even be honest about struggling with postnatal depression <clears throat> because of the perceived shame of having depression. And um, and actually, I think for us, just beginning as a church to change that culture, and not only pastorally is hugely liberating, but it's it's incredibly powerful for a, a, a generation that struggles with trust. Okay, so that's my five-minute version. Let me give you a second. Uh, there's five on here, and I'm just going to do two really quickly. The second one is tolerance. Uh, these kind of are sequential, and when you read the book, it really makes sense, or if you listen to my ser- sermon series. Um, if, you, if you're if you a kid, and you're now in your 20s, and you've been particularly hit by maybe family breakup, which is this epidemic we're talking about, not only are you going to struggle with, with trust, tolerance for you will be a big deal, a huge deal. Because in all honesty, if you've seen perhaps the fundamental unit that you should be able to trust, i.e. your mum and dad, kind of falling apart and knocking seven bells out of each other and ending in divorce, it's not that surprising if therefore in your life, a deep yearning in your soul is to see people actually get on. That's why in education and in sports and in politics, tolerance is a massive issue. And that's why in simple terms, for many, you know, for many of the 20s generation, <clears throat> the single biggest thing that's led to wars and atrocities in Bosnia and Rwanda and Northern Ireland is a lack of tolerance between people. And therefore, when they perceive in Christians, even if it's inaccurate, when they perceive an intolerance, and I, well, we're just right on this, and you need to just kind of understand that, it, ju- it, it I think it often shuts people down emotionally because it's touching a particular now issue of tolerance that is incredibly um, sensitive. And and therefore, it's incredibly key that we understand, I believe Jesus Christ was profoundly tolerant. Profoundly tolerant. I mean, he was someone who, obviously for thousands of years, has been ultimately tolerating and expressing profound patience to a world that has been rebelling against him. Romans 12, Paul says, do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, his tolerance, and his patience. I believe Jesus Christ actually was fundamentally incredibly tolerant, 
But I think often because of our passion for holiness and fearing the Lord and the Bible and everything, we can sometimes, I think, be clumsy um, in terms of actually giving off the vibes of intolerance. When I think we need to be a people who really understand this and and the way that we counteract uh, a perception of intolerance is this is understanding that acceptance is not the same as agreement. Acceptance is not the same as agreement. So how do we help twenties and believers sort of sense a culture in our church um, where, where tolerance is actually prized it's this fundamental of discernment between agreement and acceptance. And what I mean by that is this. <clears throat> the Bible's full of exhortations to accept one another. Romans 15 says, accept one another as Christ has accepted you. Ephesians 4, uh, at the end of the, near the end of the chapter, verse 25 to 29, you see clearly in that church in Ephesus, there were liars, there were angry people, there were thieves, because Paul's telling them to stop doing it. So there was a culture of acceptance in the church of Ephesus. It was absolutely massive. When I went to Mars Hill in uh, Seattle, I went thinking, okay, what is a mature church? And in all honesty, I went thinking, oh, it will be a church where everyone prophesies a lot and everyone's smiling and the worship's electric and it's all good. I went to this church, which, you know, led by Mark Driscoll, 10,000 people currently, it's a lot, lot bigger than that now. And most of them were like wife beaters and paedophiles and, you know, dodgy people in a worldly sense who, have come, who are coming on the journey to faith. And as I went in there, although musically it was brilliant, you know, no one, there was no great demonstration of the charismatic and the worship people looked sort of somewhat like they were observing. And I was judging in my head thinking, oh, this is just awful. And I felt God say, no, it's not actually, Tom. They are mature from an Ephesians 4 point of view, in terms of evangelism, and you're not. You've got a few hundred people who basically are all pretty squeaky clean at a surface level. <clears throat> Mark Driscoll is being used to see thousands of people come from an incredibly dark place, and this is the key. They feel accepted at Mars Hill. But there is a difference between acceptance and agreement, and it's not easy But I think Christ's model is brilliantly. People felt accepted. Prostitutes felt accepted. There was a culture of acceptance, but also a a very uh, clear line at which that didn't mean necessarily agreement with everything. And that's, I think, the kind of path that we need to be uh, strongly, passionately trying to seek after. I love the illustration that, um, again, John Burt uses. He says, if you were to find a Rembrandt, Uh, in a bush covered in mud, your first response would not be like, oh my word, look at all this mud. Your first response would be wonder at the Rembrandt. Your your main focus would be on the masterpiece. Oh, and yes, of course, secondarily, we've got to clean it up. And he says in the same way, he says, actually, we have to understand that even for people who have, you know, metaphorically got a lot of mud on them, Ultimately, Christ died for them, and they are profoundly valuable in his sight. And the focus actually is on the Rembrandt more than the mud. The, the, we need to be a people who, <clears throat> who model um, a culture in which we are focusing on uh, the person that they could potentially be in Christ, <clears throat> rather than getting too shocked 
by the mud, although the mud often is genuinely at times something that is 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 tough and we have to kind of um it doesn't mean we we you know overlook it but it's focusing on the masterpiece more than the mud all right i've given you two incredibly quick versions of two out of the five i hope that's whetted your appetite to at least get the book or listen to the sermons in the missionary series so this is talking about getting the culture of the church right so that we are doing our best to help those with those five struggles, trust, tolerance, truth, brokenness, and aloneness, when they actually do come into the church family to sense a culture which is accepting, even if not agreeing, a place where there can be doubts and struggles, etc. However, the second thing I want to just spend the last few minutes on is this. Once that culture is, you've started to establish it, and we deliberately did the focus on the culture last year, before even telling anyone to go and talk to lots of non-Christians. Because we thought if they're coming into a church culture, which is actually, to be honest with you, subtly pharisaic and a little bit kind of judgmental, then that's going to do more harm than good. So get the culture right first. But then on the inside of this handout, you'll see um, what we've just termed eight significant steps to take in terms of inviting people to connect with the people of God. <clears throat> what we've been saying this term in terms of equipping people to now be proactive is this, is that the God of the Bible is not just a welcoming God. <clears throat> He's an inviting God. He's not just a God who, if you happen to come on a Sunday, if you happen to get to heaven, he will be like, Oh, hi. Yeah, you're welcome. He is not just passively welcoming, he's proactively highly inviting, which is why he bothered to send his son to planet Earth to go and invite people to know that God is real. And we as Christians, obviously, we know the Great Commission, we've got to go out and make disciples. However, what we often can fall into is when we hear the Matthew 28 commission to go and to tell people about Jesus, is that we can think of a drill sergeant screaming in our face to go and do something. Rather than, for example, we see in Luke chapter 10, which is where these eight significant steps are taken from, we see Jesus sending out the 72. And what we see here, rather than a God who is screaming like a drill sergeant to tell, uh, come on, guys, go out there and, and make people believers and in a driven way, what he does is, he gives them wonderfully achievable, practical things to do that when we do them, either in a very obvious way or in a more subtle way, nevertheless, each of them express something of the invitational heart of Christ to the world around us. And if you were to go through um, uh, these verses, we haven't got much time left, so I won't read them out, but you probably know them. He says, you know, the harvest is plentiful, the labourers are few, Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. He then talks about, he says, whenever your house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. So what we've done this time is looked at how in those few verses, those 12 verses, <clears throat> you can see at least either explicitly or implicitly each of these eight different um, steps. I, you can invite people to receive a smile. So just a two-minute summary of that. <clears throat> we drew that from this whole thing of being a people who bring peace to those around us. So he says, if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. 
And we, we looked at the whole fact that Christians are called to be those who not dependent on how we feel, because sometimes we feel pretty cheesed off and anything but peaceful. But because of the son of God, who is the prince of peace living inside of us, we will be those that bring peace to the world around us. And it starts with a smile. So I did an entire sermon on smiling and the fact that as a people, you tell me if, if, you know, if Jesus says, make sure you're bringing peace to your neighborhood, to your neighbors, at the school gates, at the gym, at the park, wherever it is I've placed you, I'm calling you to bring your peace. And where you connect with men and women who are sons of peace, I, people I'm working on, I'm ambushing for the kingdom, your peace will rest on them. Others who I'm not working on, don't, don't worry about it. Your peace won't rest on them. Actually, it will return to you. But the point being, as Mother Teresa says, peace begins with a smile. And so although I said, look, I'm not telling you to go out there and have clown smiles and pretend that everything's great. What I am saying is to take ownership for your street and your walk to the school gates or your university accommodation block and to make eye contact with people, to be thinking, how can I outwork this command of Jesus to bring peace to the world around me? And what we've seen is incredible fruit. It sounds ridiculous, but literally saying to the church, okay, number one, there's nothing else you can do invite people to receive a smile and i have a little phrase i walk the kids to school every once a week on a monday which is my day off and i will be walking down my street which is about a mile to the uh, school and i will be like a maniac trying to make eye contact with my neighbors or the dads or the mums going to school gates and i have a i have a sort of bit of a phrase i use with myself a vision for a hundred hellos And I think for most grumpy blokes, if I'm taking the kids to school once a week, that's like roughly 50 weeks a year. Over two years, that's about 100 hellos that I will take the initiative with and try and make eye contact. Normally, after about 100, you might get some kind of grunt back and a bloke actually going, all right. And I've found that as I've done this over the last couple of years, as crazy as it sounds, because we live in such a cynical, grumpy nation, even doing something like that stands out a mile and it leads to the ongoing trust and relationship connection that can lead to so much. One illustration is um, I'm currently uh, every Friday morning doing um, what's called Uncover, which you may know. Uncover is basically um, six studies in the Gospel of Luke for seekers, for those who are interested in Christianity, rather than starting with all the questions that they have. The idea is you sit down and you go through six stories about Jesus um, in the Gospel of Luke. I'm currently doing that with a guy called Christian, who is a, um, a trainee uh, manager at Starbucks. And um, he's a total dude, 22-year-old guy, a bit of a lad. And every time I went to Starbucks, I found myself grinning at him like a maniac and thinking, I just know some, somehow one day I'm going to know this guy. I was at a, um, a wedding about three weeks ago and I preached and um, huge numbers of non-Christians there. And afterwards, to, to my surprise, he came up to me and he was there at the reception. And I was like, Christian, what are you doing? Oh, I didn't know his name. I said, hello, I, I know you from Starbucks. He was like, yeah, yeah. The guy who got married, Caleb, I'm one of his friends. And he just said, because of the way Caleb, who's my work colleague, um, has always smiled and just oozed a kind of peace. I've just been drawn to him. And he, and he told me about this God. 
And he said, and he just said today, as, as you were talking and hearing about this Jesus, I just know I've got to find out more. Could I possibly come to your church? And I said, yes, of course you can. Absolutely. No problemo. But why don't we just have a coffee first of all, and I can kind of talk you through what it's going to be like and just start to help unpack some of your questions. He was like, fantastic. And so I said to him, look, let's, you got all these questions, come on Sunday, but why don't we meet every week and we'll go through Uncover, we'll go through some of the stories in Luke and there's there's some brilliant questions in here which will help us to look at Jesus. And this guy is this close to, to making an absolute full-on heartfelt confession of, of love for Jesus and uh, repentance of his old life. And it all started with my friend and his friend Caleb being a work colleague who consistently smiled at him. So that's just one out of eight steps that we've looked at. The lo- another one, just to finish, which you'll see on your little um, handout here, is this thing of looking at his story, looking at his story inviting people to look at his story. I've kind of already mentioned it with this illustration of Christian, that as sort of old-fashioned as it sounds, you know, when Jesus in here, he says, heal the sick and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Jesus is implying here that even if you're smiling at people and eating with them and doing all the other things that he says, there must come a moment where that individual suddenly senses, this isn't the kingdom of Tom Shaw, or Tim Simmons, or whoever you are, this person who is a nice person and is praying for me, or, or, or I'm eating meals with, or I'm getting to know, and they're babysitting for me, actually behind this person, there's a different kingdom. This is, this is God. And Jesus is saying there must come a moment where that happens. And I believe the number one way that happens is actually through non-Christians encountering, of course, the Holy Spirit, but actually the Bible the word of God. So often as Christians, bizarrely, we kind of mentally think, well, I've got my non-Christian friends and I'll kind of try and somehow lead them to Christ and then they'll come to church and then eventually we'll get a Bible and we'll start learning the Bible. Rather than realizing, actually, we can invite people to realize that the secret to this life in terms of knowing it's not about them but about him can start way beyond them ever coming on a Sunday. You know, the reality is for most people, statistically, <clears throat> they are open to prayer. They are open to hearing your testimony. They are open to, to conversing about things. What they're most freaked out by is the idea of coming to church. That's for most non-Christians the thing that actually is the biggest, scariest thing. So if we can take some element of church life, i.e. the word of God, to them, where they're at, Actually, you know, Jeremiah 23 says the word of God is a fire. It's a hammer. Hebrew says it's living. It's active. And I think it's criminal that for most of us as Christians, we don't ever think to actually take some one verse or half a verse uh, into our non-Christian context. So when someone says, oh, I'm really plagued with worry at the moment about my mum or my dad, we can often just go, oh, sorry about that. Rather than thinking, "Okay, Lord, what scripture can I actually invite them to experience because when we do that when we when we are proactive in looking to allow scripture to do the heavy lifting and to and to actually change their minds um even before they've even come anywhere near a church on sunday what we're doing is we're saying you know as charles spurgeon said i would rather speak five words of his word than five million of my own 
And I just feel that for us uh, as a church in Canterbury, we're just beginning to learn that this thing needs to be, it needs to be, you know, released from the cage. <laughs> this, this wonderful book uh, is not just something for Christians, but actually it's profoundly key in terms of, um, of, of, of enabling uniquely it's more than any other physical object on planet earth you know in conjunction with the holy spirit the word of god gets the world to realize that it's poison in its heart which is sin which makes them think everything is about them is actually a complete lie and it's all about him and this book uniquely will do that well we hope you enjoyed what tom had to say just to remind you, for this full hangout, for all the notes, and for the Q&A that followed it, you can visit www.thebroadcastnetwork.org slash episode 7. And if you go to thebroadcastnetwork.org, you'll find our full archive of church planting resources. You'll find hangouts and articles and audio and video materials. You can also sign up and then you can stay in the loop about all of our upcoming hangouts so you can join them live as they happen.